Hey, what's up, everybody? Thanks for uh, coming to another episode of The Swipe File. Steve, I don't know if you know this podcast is called The Swipe File because every marketer has to. Yeah, I think all the great marketers have a, have a swipe file. Um, and so, look, I'm super excited because it's not often people talk about all this beef between sales and marketing, but I'm here to I'm here to bridge that gap because I have a I have a guy on the line with me today who's who's actually not a marketer. Do you think you're a marketer? Are you a marketer? I think everyone should be a marketer, um, but but I don't think I'm technically a marketer, and and I probably couldn't do much of a much of a job doing that sort of role. But no. So so anyway, I'm gonna let you introduce. So this is this is my friend uh, Steve Brody, who uh, I think I first I think we met I think we met um, where the hell was that? We had dinner. I remember having dinner with Steve Johnson, who was at Vidyard at the time. And mm-hmm. how much was that? Was it sales loft rainmaker maybe last year or something like that? Yeah, I think it was rainmaker 18. Yeah. So anyway, long story short, we're back connected. So give, give the people, uh, the people who don't, who don't know you, haven't heard you before first time, uh, meeting you give a, give a little quick intro. Yeah. So, um, my name is Steven Brody. I run sales at Bevy, which is the platform that best in industry breeds like Slack, Atlassian, Salesforce, Asana, all use to build, scale, and grow their in-person community. Prior to working there, I worked at MuleSoft and subsequently Salesforce when we were acquired. Um, at MuleSoft, I started with a team of seven account development reps, and that grew to a team of 67 in the Americas Inside org. And uh, my last role at MuleSoft was running business operations. So I stood up that role and was focused on, amongst other, th- other things, sales effectiveness. And I'm super excited to be here. I've got a, a bit of a weird background. I actually came to sales by way of Army Special Operations. So if you hear a lot of terrible um, analogies or jargon, Feel free to cut me off and call me out and, and ask what it means. Um, I, I don't often catch myself, but it's been like seven years, so I should be I should be good. Also, I've worn Hawaiian shirts every day for longer than 400 days now, so I'm easy to spot. <laughs> okay, hold on, hold on. There's about 14 things I want to unpack with you with you there. Um, yeah. Wait, wait. So 400 days ago, as as DC and everybody else at Drift would tell you, I'm not a math guy, but that's like a little bit over a year. What 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 happened a year over a year ago that made that made you make the switch to wine shirts? Um. So truth be told, uh, it, this all started as a passive aggressive jab. <laughs> Salesforce. Uh, we, someone announced that, well, the company announced that we were getting acquired by Salesforce. And I think truth be told, Salesforce is an amazing organization. And frankly, I really respect their ability to drive just um, continued success. And, and frankly, I think the acquisition of MuleSoft was brilliant. Um, and it's, it's really paying dividends for them. But when we were acquired by Salesforce, having sort of hired against their brand in terms of talent for years, I, I, you know, I was really sort of adamant about the fact that we needed to address the fact that culturally, I think we were very different companies. And so I talked to uh, our CEO who was about to put on an all hands and said, hey, man, you got to call out the fact that we've got different cultures. And he got on stage and and Greg Schott, to his credit, is one of the most thoughtful, well-spoken amazing leaders I've ever had the opportunity to work with. And, and, you know, I say that and I've literally worked with people who have 
you know, the Medal of Honor. So I think that's saying a lot. But it was the one time I saw him slip up and he basically got on stage and I think he sort of froze and said, you know, look, like Salesforce, I probably shouldn't tell this story now that I think about it, but he's like, you know, Salesforce and Yieldsoft, we've got a very similar culture. Uh, they've got four core values. We've got four core values. And I was like, oh man, get out of here. So I went and I gave him a really hard time about it. And I'd been wearing a Hawaiian shirt to celebrate Keith Block coming in the office. And the next day I decided to go up to him and wear another Hawaiian shirt. And I was like, look, Greg, same, same core values. And he's like, dude, you're you're a jerk. And he was right. I am. But I realized a few things. First of all, I'm six foot three white guy, and I'm probably inherently not all that approachable by virtue of that. Um, especially if people find out that I spent six years going to war every night. And I think that what I've found as I continued to sort of wear Hawaiian shirts was that it's, it's really disarming. Like people are a lot more likely to assume that I'm friendly and approachable and I want them to because I think I am and can be. And second of all, you know, it's the sort of Zuckerberg thing where I'm, I've got a very, very focused morning routine, a finite amount of time in which I've got to do it. And the last thing I want to do is be expending mental energy thinking about what I look like every day. And I'd rather look stupid than look like I'm trying. So, you know, my only my only issue with Hawaiian shirts is I think like as, as summer approaches, they're kind of coming back in vogue and I don't want people to think I'm stylish by any means. So hopefully uh, the fact that I'm wearing Merrill shoes every day that look like you're supposed to be, you know, out rock climbing uh, gives people the impression that I, I certainly don't have style, but that's, that's the long and short of it. If, uh, if we don't talk about marketing and sales at all in this podcast, I'm good because I, I, I want to, I want to, <laughs> want to have a conversation with you. Okay. So, I, so that's that. So, so did, did that lead to you? Did that whole experience, like, is that why you ended up leaving Salesforce MuleSoft was because of that, if that was handled differently, mm -hmm. would you, would you still be there or, or is this a product of you want to go do something anyway? No, I actually think that's a great question. Like truth be told, I think Salesforce is a phenomenal company. I think the acquisition made a ton of sense. And frankly, like Salesforce has done an amazing job of leaving MuleSoft is sort of an autonomous business unit, and, and they have to, right? Because integration at its essence, um, the ability to be effective in that space means you need to be able to connect anything to everything. And uh, MuleSoft's often connecting Salesforce to other Salesforce clouds or Salesforce to other core systems, and it's often connecting other core systems at companies that they compete with to, you know, Salesforce or to other core systems or SaaS systems at other companies that they're competing with. So I think Salesforce has handled that integration really well. I left because truth be told, like I said, I started with seven people on my team in one office and grew that to 67 across five offices. And, and frankly, um, it was an amazing, amazing opportunity. And I got really lucky and I was over my skis the whole time, but I, I'm just missed, you know, it's, it's hard being in business operations where you're kind of a glorified consultant and you can't just jump on the phone and grab it. And you don't have as many opportunities to grow, coach, and develop people and really help them realize the best versions of themselves. And if I, if I look at like one analog from army special operations and uh, my work in tech, I feel like I've 
continue to have that opportunity to be able to bring on board people I feel like have incredible potential that they might not even personally realize and really help them understand that that they are that capable and, and really see the success of, of realizing that potential. Has your, like, I'm just interested in that. that you, that's a super interesting thread that I just kind of, it's interesting to me in my head. How, how I just be interested in knowing like, how is your, how is your management style been dictated by your mm-hmm. military, you know, background is that is that i'm just curious like how do you i want to know how do you how do you manage how do you run run one-on-ones how do you set expectations like has that stuff has that stuff did that stuff shape how you lead and how you manage in 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 the workplace absolutely i think it's shaped uh well first of all i think it dictated early on that i really needed to learn a new way to lead and i think at the core of that is the fact that effective communication in army special operations in a highly dynamic environment in which things are literally life and death um, sort of naturally dictates that you need to be short concise and to the point context is not necessary when someone is following you into a room and you're in some terrible person's house and your job is to go right and their job is to go left if you're in training and you go right and they go right you're probably going to destroy them. And the reason is if that happens overseas, if I go right in a room and the guy behind me goes right in a room, there's someone in the left corner with an AK 47. I mean, we both literally die. Like, and the reality is, you know, a lot of what made me wildly successful in that role were habits and, and ways of communicating that I had to unlearn. And it's interesting because, you know, I wrote a sort of piece on radical candor a while back. And I think I, I tended, and maybe I still tend to fall in the quadrant of like obnoxious aggression. But I think what I've gotten better at is doing a few things like actually contextualizing the decisions that I'm making. You know, it's not communication over radio in the middle of the night. Um, the second piece is really demonstrating empathy and frankly, vulnerability, you know, vulnerability overseas is not just unnecessary. It's potentially very dangerous. And the third piece is, you know, really going out of my way to be more compassionate with myself. In Ranger Regiment, there's a saying that the only good excuse is no excuse. And the truth is, that's very helpful when it's, you know, the, the sort of circumstances dictate that you need to react rapidly to a highly dynamic, really dangerous environment. And if you react the wrong way, you know, like I said, life and death stakes here in the real world, like you know, not everything's life and death. You need to take that tactical pause and make sure you're making the right decision. And, and if you really own your failure and really position failure as something that's okay, especially as a sales leader, you create an environment in which you can celebrate that and learn from it. And, you know, the way we learn from failure overseas is every single mission we ended with like an after action review, no matter what, it's like, what went well, what didn't, what are we going to do differently? And I think that is one thing I've carried over to my one-on-ones. And 
I think, I hope that people who work with me now understand that my focus on what we can do better does not mean we have not done well. But that can be a, a tough and a tricky challenge because, you know, I was, I was born in the early 80s, but I think the millennial has been beaten out of me. And, and now I'm working with a lot of amazing millennials who bring a lot to the table, but I'm not sure that that's been the environment in which they've developed as professionals necessarily. I think it's, it's also tough if you have, it's also tough if you have really big goals, right? And so this is, this is something that I've had to kind of like retrain my brain on in, in, in being at Drift and just kind of being part of this wild ride so far, which is, mm-hmm. so I work for David, who, who you know, and, and who's our, our CEO. Yeah. And, and, you know, in, in his mind, and, um, and it's never enough, right? And, and so, uh, mm-hmm. Because the goal is not to hit this year's number and next year's number. It's a 10-year goal, 20-year goal. And so no matter what we're doing today, it's never enough. And and I think there's people who can look at that and say, man, I just want you to be like, you know what? You did a great job. Take the rest of the day off, right? But what I've learned sure. is there's a great there's a great, a great quote. One of my favorite books is called um, Seven Strategies for Wealth and Happiness by this guy, Jim Rohn, who was Tony Robbins' original mm-hmm. mentor. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the power of setting goals in that book. And he, and he says basically that the power of setting goals, goals act like magnets. You want to set big-ass goals because if you set big goals, they end up pulling you towards that target, right? You say maybe your, mm-hmm. goal, is, maybe your goal is working out. You can't do 100 push-ups. And so you say you, want to do, you can do no push-ups right now. If you say I want to do 100, if you set a goal of 100 and you miss, but you probably do 60 push-ups, right? You still are doing 60 mm-hmm. more push-ups than you started with. And so, so I, I totally, it's interesting to hear your perspective on that mindset. And, and it's tough because everybody is different. Everybody on the team, you know, like the team that I'm responsible for today, um, everybody ha- takes feedback in a different way. Everybody needs coaching in a different mm-hmm. way. Everybody, mm-hmm. you know, you, there are people that you can't just push, 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 push. Where we, with, with DC, for example, I think he knows he can continue to push me. Uh, but then there's a point where I'm like, all right, I need you to relax, right? And, and I think it's just different. So it's mm-hmm. interesting to hear how that has kind of played out. Um, for you, I have one one thing you mentioned earlier in that, which is you said that you the whole time at MuleSoft, you so your your team was six to what sixty plus ish. Mm-hmm. You said you were over yeah, your sixty-seven. You, I think you were, you were over your skis the whole time, and yeah, I want you to I want you to dig into that a little bit because it's a feeling that I know a lot of people. Basically, anybody that I've ever interviewed or talked to that has been part of a very fast and, and growing company and successful company, right, has felt that. I know mm-hmm. I still feel it every day. How did you, what, how did that play out for you? How do you overcome that? And, and is it, you know, it sounds similar to like imposter syndrome, right? You're over your skis the whole time. Yeah. So, so first of all, I got really well acclimated to it in Ranger Regiment. You know, it's really interesting how Ranger Regiment goes and selects individuals to join the unit versus like the seals seals is a great unit like great people but what's interesting about buds and their selection process is to an extent like it's six months long it's a real long time it's really hard it's very physically demanding like i don't want to diminish that but they spend six months and and part of that is you know making you go run get sugar cookied in the sand and go and swim in the freezing cold water and part of that is teaching you how to use scuba gear and do patrolling operations and on the flip side in ranger regiment uh when i went through the ranger indoctrination sort of uh process which is called rip is an acronym 
literally they spent eight weeks trying to make you quit. And then they, like, if you made it and you might start with 360 people and 16 made it, they basically had just identified people who, when the going get got like really, truly tough to the point where like no human being physically is strong enough to just continue to persist and persevere unless you can like shut off your mind and just grind it out. What that dictated is once they got to the unit, like they knew they had the people they needed who had the sort of core foundational skills to go and be successful. And they were going to teach you everything you needed to do to actually do your job proficiently and effectively. It's a lot like hiring, you know, high potential candidates for an early career sales role. And the, the thing for me is I got to Ranger Regiment sort of thinking like, look, I made it. I was the honor graduate in RIP. I was in the best shape of my life. I was, you know, 24 years old and arrogant. And I got my ass handed to me so hard. And I was living on a two cushion love seat in a barrack with, uh, you know, a couple kids who were like two, three years younger than me. And it was absolutely miserable. But because I knew I didn't know anything, and I brought that beginner's mindset to everything, it made me sort of uniquely capable of being successful. What was interesting was, you know, during my third deployment, I basically got told, hey, you're going to sniper section. Now, sniper section in Ranger regiments, like one of the most highly sought after units uh, on the team. And I, I, I had a team that I was working with. I really loved my role uh, on the line, as we called it. And I basically was like, no, I don't want to do that. And, you know, the, the, the funny thing is like the psychologist, the battalion psychologist, they like assess and select you. And part of that is like a psychological battery and they tend to do it like before and after every deployment basically said like, dude, you don't have a choice. Like you just fit the profile. And I had literally like, even being in Ranger Regiment, I had never looked down like uh, the scope of a sniper rifle ever. And I got put into this unit and like call it half the kids are, you know, good old boys from Alabama who's been sitting in tree stands all day shooting deer. And I'd never really done any long rifle work ever. And, you know, a, a couple of years in, I was like, we had like an internal sniper competition and I won it. And the reason I won it was all I was good at was understanding what fundamentally we needed to be effective at in order to be a good shot. And I just focused on that and I didn't have to unlearn any bad habits. So being over my skis for me was like, absolutely the key to my success and I think professionally like as a litmus test if you're not one like energized by the work you're doing and by that I mean it doesn't matter how hard you work you still come home and you feel like wow like I want to talk about this you know I'm not avoiding my wife because I know she's going to ask how my day was and two over your skis and feeling that sense of imposter syndrome, I'd say get the hell out. And I think that really sort of largely dictates for me when I know I'm ready to, to move on in a role. But I think if you look at my sort of LinkedIn resume, you'll see like I tend to stick around long enough for that to actually happen. And I think it actually should take longer than you think it's going to take. And in this age of instant gratification, I think people tend to think about their careers in terms of days and weeks and months. And the reality is a career's 40 years. 
and months, you know, in the great scheme of things are, are going to feel um, very, very uh, negligible in terms of the amount of time you've spent really striving for mastery. But I digress. I know, I know we were going to talk sales and marketing and I'm, I'm excited to, and I hate talking about myself in spite of the fact that I've been doing it for the last 15 minutes. So you tell me what we should be talking about, DG. If you don't think this was intentional, then you're, you're fooling yourself. I wanted, I wanted both. I wanted both. We talk about, I talk about B2B buying all day, every day. It's better. It's better to, to mix it up. And also, by the way, this, this makes it a stronger, from a storytelling perspective, this makes it a, more people will have listened to this point in the podcast than if we had started off <laughs> right there. So, uh, I like okay. it. You're okay. great. This is why I know you're an amazing hey, marketer. I, 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 um, I did, I, I went to your LinkedIn profile cause I was like, what is he talking about? He stays at places a long time. Like, and so I, you're, you're so in on the Hawaiian shirt thing that not only do you have a Hawaiian shirt on in this, in this video, but you have a, um, uh, an avatar on LinkedIn that is you, a, a nice caricature of you in a Hawaiian shirt. And then your, your background, the background image is, uh, it doesn't look like Tommy Bahama. It looks like a Tori Richard, uh, uh, um, there we go. So Good this, shout out. This Good guy shout is out. all, all, I'm all let, let's, 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 let's talk about, let's talk about B2B. Let's talk about B2B, Brian buying because i want to yeah. hear i want to know okay so let me tell you i'll do i'll do a little talking you can have some seltzer or whatever and, and we'll take it so perfect my the whole way that i've been thinking maybe i want to get your take this is how i pitch like what's happening out there in the world right which is like we live in a world today where nobody wants to be sold to and nobody wants to be marketed to right and the reason why there's really two reasons why number one is options and number two is information options meaning there are more choices in any industry than ever before, right? Why did you pick that Hawaiian shirt versus another? There's probably a thousand companies that make Hawaiian shirts. Never mind, never mind the industry that we're in, which is sales and marketing tech, right? There's literally over 7,000 companies in this space. So as a result, um, customers have all the power because if they, if I don't treat you good, if I don't treat you well, you can go to Google drift competitor and go to go use them. Right. Um, the other one is information. Number two was information. Information meaning like information is now free. I can find anything out about you, about your company, about basically anything that your, your product and services is without ever having to talk to anybody on your, you know, on your team. Like my wife and I, I have two like personal examples of this in the last couple months. My wife and I woke up Saturday morning and we we're like this, we've had this mattress forever. This mattress sucks. Let's get a new mattress. She literally pulls out her phone. She bought a mattress within 20 minutes on her phone and it was at our house in two days. Okay. Two months prior to that, we bought a new car. The way we bought the car was like the opposite of how my parents have bought a car, which is like you go to the dealership 15 times, you know, you, you, you go there with no information. We Google, we, we did all our research online. I said, I don't want to be here all day. I don't want you to sell to me. I want to drive a car off the lot today. Uh, and here I want to test drive this one versus that one, right? Because now there's more information. So those two things, options and information to me at least have changed the balance of power in B2B buying. And, and like we, we, but then we go to our jobs in sales and marketing and we do all the things that we hate, right? We assume that, that people are not also regular consumers in their personal lives. So that's like the topic that I'm super passionate about and, and can talk for hours about. But is that, is that kind of in the ballpark of how you, how you think about things? 100%. And I think like the, the reality is the Amazons of the world have really uh, anchored us 
in a set of expectations for how we want to buy. Because I don't know about you, but it sounds like we're, we're, we're very similar in that. Look, I buy basically two ways. One, I go on Amazon knowing what I want and I look for five-star reviews and I buy it. Two, I basically see my friend wearing a sweet Hawaiian shirt and I'm like, dude, where'd you get that? Or I actually know I want a sweet Hawaiian shirt and I ask my friend who I know has sweet Hawaiian shirts and, or I go and read a blog about it and buy it. And like, that's really like how people buy today. And, you know, Gartner has some amazing sort of uh, data on this, but, but look, like here's the long and short of it. To your point, buyers don't want to be sold to. Like I avoid brick and mortar like the plague because I know someone's going to talk to me. And if I went to brick and mortar, it's because it can't get delivered fast enough to my house for me to need that product when I feel like I need it. And second of all, people don't trust salespeople and increasingly they don't trust online content. Now, like here is like to me what most epitomizes or sort of characterizes what B2B buying actually looks like. And that's like a, a sort of pie chart that Gartner has where it's a distribution of buying groups time by activities and where they're spending that time. So first of all, they spend the least amount of time, 17% of their time, meeting with your salespeople. So like if you are a modern sales leader or marketer, what you need to do is ensure that your salespeople are capable of identifying the right pain, of empathizing with it, of delivering value, of being a trusted advisor, that you as a sales leader are coaching them, and that you are making that as much of a buyer-centric process as possible. But just bear in mind that you are getting the smallest sort of piece of the pie of a buyer's time. Where they spend the most time is researching independently online. And the thing is, with all of this fake news and gated content, like people increasingly don't really even trust what's going on online. Like if you gate content, I don't want to read it because I've got a set of key buying jobs that I need to complete and I need to complete them in a timely manner because I'm looking at a 30 minute window in my calendar where I have free time and I need to identify like potential vendors and see if they're purpose fit for what I need to do. So you can optimize the hell out of your online channels. But if I have a question, I sure as hell hope someone's got drift on their website and I can ask them or if there's a chat bot that pops up, I hope that it's actually guiding me to the right content so I don't waste my time clicking through pages because everyone knows how terrible B2B buying websites are. I think the third piece is, and this is the, you know, the, the interesting one, is people actually spend more time researching independently offline, meaning meeting with your current customers, than they do meeting with your sales team. And I feel like that's the next frontier, like creating opportunities for people to get in front of your customers and let your customers sell for you. It's that idea of like customer to customer marketing. And it seems and sounds really organic, but like the best in industry companies out there, the MuleSofts of the world, the Salesforces of the world, the Atlassians of the world, they have these like incredibly robust 
in-person communities where they are basically creating opportunities for that customer to customer marketing to take place. And it's funny because I was at a modern sales pros uh, sort of uh, event last night and modern sales pros is like, in my assessment, the best community for sales and marketing leaders out there. And what the reason I think it's the best is one, like they, they sort of are, are highly moderated in terms of who they let in and who they let join. And they're very clear about the rules. Like you're not here to pitch your product. Now, <laughs> no, the think, funny think, thing about I it. I remember, I remember I got, um, uh, our Armin, our, our VP of sales at drift, like I think two years ago when, when he started, we like found a way to help get him into the group and he ended up like posted something and he got, he got like suspended for a couple weeks. Got the boot. It was so yeah. funny. But it is true. Everybody I've talked to has said that, and I've, I've been in it, uh, and and it is it. But for for to all your points, right? It is it is the best resource for that reason. But I do remember Armin got the got the boot. I, I I love that. And and look, like here's the irony of that. I sat across the table from seven sales leaders, and like five of them had notebooks out writing down vendors that they were going to go and procure because other people were evangelizing how amazing their experience working with that vendor was and how sort of it uniquely helped them find success. That's incredible. Like the crazy piece is there's so few companies out there who are owning their in-person community. They're so dead set and focused online, which is critically important because bear in mind, you spend 27% of your time as a buyer online but you're still spending 18% of your time talking to people in real life. And by the way, like people distrust salespeople, let's reiterate that. And they trust your customers. And if you can activate and own that community, like I feel like that's the final frontier. And you know, I, I've talked to some, some people about the idea of building out and scaling their community. And a lot of them tend to start and focus online, which I actually think is, is really smart, especially if you're trying to do things like decrease support costs or ensure people are successful using your product or your platform. But if you're trying to create new opportunities or increase the affinity people feel for your brand, or frankly, like even potentially attract talent to come on board, like there's no better way to do that than in person and, and you look no further than the sales forces of the world and i don't know what boston's like but in san francisco i see like 17 people a day walking around in trailblazer hoodies and what's amazing about that community is those people are not just massive fans of salesforce but they are unequivocally going to go to every single company where they're subsequently hired to be you know the administrator of their crm and they're going to advocate that that company, if they don't already have it, brings on board Salesforce, meaning like they've literally started staking their career on a brand. And like, look, I'll say this and it'll upset some people, but like, I don't know if Salesforce and their CRM is inherently better than like Dynamics or Zendesk CRM. And I don't really care. And I don't even really think it matters. Because unless Microsoft or unless Zendesk or HubSpot can actually truly activate and own their community, like Salesforce has got true stickiness. They have community as a defensible asset. 
I think that that is like the the problem is like most people don't want to do that because it's not it's not uh it's not instantly scalable in the sense of like you got to mm-hmm. go you're going to go do your first your first community meetup right you're you're going to get like eight people there i think i think marketers want to mm-hmm. bias for the like ah oh, what's my best chance at getting 800 people right the the other thing i was yeah. thinking while you were saying that is i just like i think the biggest i think one of the biggest skills lacking in marketing and sales today is is empathy um and mm-hmm. actually like the most selfish form of that which is like i always think about which ads, which headlines, which, what do I read? What do I actually use mm-hmm. in my world? And then that email that I'm about to send out or that webinar that we're about to do, would I actually go to that, right? Because if the mm-hmm. answer is no, then I'm just kind of peddling some, some crap that like I wouldn't go to anyway and then expect somebody else to do that. So I think that's really important. And, and the lines of empathy, the, the most value for me that I get honestly is when I go to something and I get invited to, um, a lunch. And that lunch is mm-hmm. 10 other people who are just like me in the same job at a different company. Because mm-hmm. those are like, and I'm sure you felt the same way. Like, to me, that's almost like the yeah. therapy lunch where you're like, whoa, yeah. okay, all these other people are also way out over their skis. All these other people also mm-hmm. don't know how to track this thing either. Oh, all these mm-hmm. other people are dealing with this other thing. And so you realize like, man, we're all kind of in this together. Like nobody is that much different than I am. Like that's super beneficial. Mm-hmm. But then also I think about like how I buy, right? Enough. If I'm going to go buy a, mm-hmm. a new piece of technology for drift, right? Very rarely the first thing that I'm going to go do is go to somebody's website and talk to somebody on their team. I'm going to go read reviews or I'm going to send an email or, or text a friend that is in the same industry and be like, Hey, do you have any experience with blank? The other reason why I think your point about groups and communities is so powerful is People like people, at least like me, I don't know if you're the same, but for me, I'm driven by curiosity and this whole mindset mm-hmm. of like keeping up with the Joneses. And so if you told me that yeah. the VP of marketing at one of our competitors has some, has some secret tool that they've been using to automate blah, right? I'm instantly like, what is it? And why are they using it? And how mm-hmm. do they do it? And, how, mm-hmm. and does it do that? Mm-hmm. And so I think that is the power of hearing that. And I think that, that, that to me, that's, that's a great shift in marketing and sales because it means you can't, there isn't so much bait and switch anymore. You can't just like, you're not going to win deals just because you were the only company to write a blog article about that topic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you hit a really great point. Like I, I think the by the way, the online channel is, is still critically important. Let's not move past that. It's where people spend the majority of their time, but where that was gonna do be, you that was spend gonna be your my time that's going to be my headline for this. Yeah. Episode. Stephen Brody says uh, yeah. online is dead. <laughs> uh, uh, no, yeah, yeah, I know. Well, look, here's the thing. I, I love online. I love going and, and finding a chatbot that, you know, can give me some answers and help me understand if I should even be talking to someone or maybe talking with a live agent. And I love G2 crowd where I can figure out that like Bevy is number one in this category and people are raving about it. The, the reality though and to your point is you're right like community is incredibly valuable but it's not instantly scalable and be much in the same way people in the past have over indexed to farming leads with gated content i think people in the past also over indexed and continue to a large extent to over index to these massive in-person user conferences that cost three million dollars where you get 800 people or you put on eight events in eight core cities and that's great. You should do that. 
But once you activate those like brand evangelists and once you activate those prospects and get them excited, like then what? Like, where do they go? How do they continue to maintain that level of affinity and energy for your brand? And how do they sort of go and reciprocate? Because like, you know, I know you've read give and take, but like a lot of people are matchers. And if you go to a great user conference, they're going to be like, wow, Drift is awesome. I'm going to tell a bunch of people why it's awesome. But if Drift doesn't have a community where they can go and do that or a dinner where you can go and sit down across the table from someone and you're not beholden to anyone, but you still want to talk about how awesome they are, if you don't have an opportunity to do that, then you're, you know, then whomever that vendor is, is just missing a, a massive chance. And, and by the way, you're right. Like community is not inherently scalable. And that's because in the past, people have tried to use the same sort of playbook and core set of tools that they use to scale massive events or, or put on massive events to scale like local communities. And that inherently does not work. If, if McDonald's had had to have the same landing team to land at every single restaurant in every single market, then they wouldn't be a $121 billion company or whatever they are. Like, they understood that if you have like a franchise model for scaling, like a core set of assets, a core set of standards, and you vet the people who are going to carry your brand into new markets, like that is the way you go and scale community or frankly really scale anything. And you look, Shake Shack is great. I don't know if they're a franchise or not. I used to work at In-N-Out in high school. I was a level four fry technician, no big deal. And <laughs> In-N-Out's amazing. People sing its praises from the mountaintop. It hasn't expanded that far beyond the West Coast. It is not a franchise. It is owned by one lady who I once saw do a dance at Windsor, Windsor Waterworks when she was 16 years old. It was pretty funny. Um, and look, if they franchised out in and out and were able to still maintain the quality of uh, the product, it would, no one would be talking about White Castle or Shake Shack. And frankly, like whatever, I don't know how big that business is, but I imagine it'd be a hell of a lot bigger. And I still think they can maintain the integrity of the brand. And frankly, they might even learn some new things along the way. All right, we got about five minutes left, and I want to. We could talk about B two B buying forever, but I want to go back to this because this is what this is the stuff that I love, and and uh, I want to just ask you about it. Uh, let's wrap up with this. Earlier on, you said that uh, okay, so you started wearing all the same clothes. I, I wear I wear um, t shirts and hoodies every day for that same reason, and um, you said that you have a very strict morning routine. Give it break. Uh, give me a, give me a look into into your morning routine. I want to know. I want to I want to know exactly what you do in the morning. Yeah. So I wake up at five every day. I immediately go into the other room and meditate for 20 minutes. I get on the bus. I go to the gym. I work out. I continue to sweat uh, after showering, which is why Hawaiian shirts are absolutely amazing. <laughs> I come into work and, and I, I go through like a deliberate planning process every morning. And by the way, like, here's the thing about me. People, even my own friends, think I'm like incredibly disciplined and just that that is like an innate natural talent. I think 
some people in my life did me a massive disservice by telling me I was slightly above average in terms of intelligence and it frankly made me chronically underperform and underachieve basically until I was in Ranger Regiment. And the, what I learned there is like discipline is a function of habit and you're ne- like if you rely on motivation whether intrinsic or extrinsic in order to maintain that level of discipline you're you're destined for failure so i do the same thing every day i've pre-packed all my clothes the night before and frankly like i wear stupid hawaiian shirts and i could probably get dressed in the dark and i would look exactly the same so what time it, do you go to it bed? saved me uh not early enough um, and, and that's been a recent thing because I feel like I've just been so energized in this new role that I'm like, just amped, you know, I get home and I just want to like stay on top of it and get at it. And, you know, you, you reference Jim Rohn and, and Tony Robbins. Like, I think, I think when you step into a new role as a sales leader, especially when it's really nascent and early on, like, like we are, you sort of overestimate what you can do in a day and underestimate what you can do in a week. And I know the way Tony Robbins frames that is through the lens of like one year and 10 years, but I think it's a sort of microcosm of that same experience. And uh, the one other thing that I, I forgot is I read every night in order to fall asleep. And when I'm on the bus, because I get bus sick, I use audible to pick up where I was on Kindle cool. because I can't really look at my phone and it, it helps me get through things faster I loved what you said on a past podcast about like look you're not trying to sort of be able to re-articulate a book for a you know college exam you need to be able to take and extract out one key lesson Uh, I like to highlight stuff because it helps me sort of resurface it and I have a sort of system where I index everything I highlight uh, actually automatically so maybe maybe David and I can geek out over that sometime because I know that. So you, you have, and so, he so are, are huge highlight, readers. You highlight, highlight from the Kindle and then that automatically gets exported somewhere and then you can go search for it later? Totally. So when someone brings up a book, sometimes I don't even remember if I read it or not. Like I know that sounds stupid, but I, I've been hitting the head a lot. I'm terrible with names. And I'll search Evernote where it gets indexed automatically. And like there's like the five highlights from the book and that really sort of, was what I found to be most substantive and immediately I'm like re-anchored in what I learned and it's super valuable. Yeah. I, I, I love that. I, um, I, I find that like the more that I, the, the thing for me, like the reason why I have fallen in love with reading now is because I feel like I'm, I'm on this streak of like an endless amount of creativity and ideas. And I've realized that the only way, the only reason that's true is just because of reading that it's like, it's like this amazing mm-hmm. hack to like just come up with ideas for any, any scenario or, or, or situation. So that's been really cool. The, the challenge that I have though is I, I can't really read. If I read like a, like a book, like, and, I, and I really only enjoy reading to learn. Like I'm not – like you won't catch me just mm-hmm. like on a beach for five hours. No, like, uh, no I don't yeah. really read any fiction. So the, the problem is though like I can't really read like a, a tactical business book before bed because then my mind is just like, oh, we should go do that. We should t-. And then I got to go and like go write it down and do that. So my, my like at, at night I'll read like um, 
I'll read either like a book that's not about marketing or like a, a biography. So, so that way it's like, I don't need, yeah. really need to highlight or take notes. And then I try to be disciplined and like get 20 minutes of like learning. And I just, I, I never really read that much. In school. Mm-hmm. I just, I treat it like studying where like 20 minutes a day, I try to read some book that's going to make me better at life. And, and that could be like, that could be marketing, but it also could be, I just read, um, uh, a book called why we sleep about from a, from a, from a scientist about oh, yeah. how people sleep. And that was a good example where like, instead of reading 400 pages in that book, I flipped around to a bunch of different chapters. I learned four new things about sleep that I didn't know before. And, and now I can go on, right. I don't have to memorize every word of that thing. Totally. Totally. I mean, you and I are a lot alike and, and I think you sort of hit the nail on the head. I I'm guilty of reading like the tactical business stuff at night because I'm often coming home and saying like, man, I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. And, and I'm, and again, I think the thing about reading that I love is the ability to get like not an inch deep, but a mile deep on one like specific topic, even if ultimately you only extract out three nuggets. I, you know, again, I feel imposter syndrome in conversations. And if I hear something I don't, I don't understand and I can't speak authoritatively to, I'm not going to speak at all. And I'm going to go and try and read as much as I can about it. And hope that the next time that conversation comes around, I can actually add value. And if not, then hopefully I'll shut up and just talk about Hawaiian shirts or something. I love it. Well, this was amazing. I, I would love to keep talking to you for hours and, and we'll probably do a couple. Uh, we'll have to do a follow up at some point. But hey, thanks for thanks for coming on the show. Just just real quick, you know, give a little even though you're a sales guy, we'll let you do a little plug. Where, where can people go and find you if they if they listen to this and they like the episode, they want to hit you up. Where can they find you? Yeah, I think the best place to find me is on LinkedIn or Twitter. My Twitter is at Stephen Brody, which by the way, you know, Ellis Island really botched that. So it's spelled B is in Bravo, R is in Romeo, O is in Oscar, U is in Uniform, D is in Delta, Y is in Yankee. And if you can't tell, telemarketers love me uh, or support agents, I guess. Awesome. Well, Steven, thanks for doing it. I will hopefully see you soon. And uh, I'm going to take these off because they're making my ears sweat and we'll, we'll see you around. <laughs> thanks, CG. Really appreciate the opportunity to be a part of such a great podcast. See you, man. Of course, man. You're awesome. I'll see you later.